Thank you, team, for leading us in worship, and uh, let me extend a warm happy Thanksgiving to everybody that is joined with us here today, and those of us who are online uh, as well. This is uh, the weekend for turkey and stuffing and gathering together with friends and family and just rejoicing uh, in the goodness of the Lord. My name is Pastor Dennis, for those of you who might not know me, and it's my privilege to open the Word of God for you today on this wonderful Thanksgiving weekend, and I hope you're going to have an opportunity to gather. The gatherings might be a little bit smaller this year for obvious reasons, but uh, I trust they'll be joyous, none the same. Uh, for the believer, this really is a special day. Now, it might, it might not seem all that unique, uh, because as Christians, we really are called to give thanks all the time. Uh, communion is just one example of the way in which we do that. We regularly are called uh, to give thanks. And Thanksgiving, however, is a, a particularly special day, an important day, uh, because it calls us to take stock of our lives and to intentionally remember the incredible goodness of God and how good he has been to us. Now, I have to say... In my 27 years of pastoral ministry, I don't think I have seen a time that has needed this message of thanksgiving more than today. Our world, in a word, just seems angry. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but um, much of our uh, news today, our interactions, our Social media and so on seems to have anger at its source. Anger is kind of the rocket fuel that propels our public discourse. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some things that are, are, are that should make us angry. Some of that is good. There are some issues that we need to address, but it's the sheer volume of it to me that is disturbing. There's just so much of it out there. And I'm afraid it's going to get worse. Because I think in this atmosphere of anger, uh, we're kind of getting used to that. And not only that, I think uh, that we perhaps are using it as the foundation for social movements and conversations. We may even be getting good at monetizing it. Some of you may have caught the recent uh, 60 Minutes report about an ex-employee from Facebook who is calling out the company for uh, its impact on society at large. Now, I don't want to dump on Facebook. There's a lot of good things uh, about Facebook, and there are always two, two sides to every story. But one of the things this ex-employee did say really caught my attention, and it was this. According to her, Facebook, as you probably know, builds algorithms that help decide what content they're going to show you. Uh, it does that because the more stuff that they can show you to keep you engaged, and the more they can keep you clicking on stuff in Facebook, um, the more that advertisers are interested in being in that space, and the more that Facebook can charge for that. So it actually is money for them to keep them engaged and to keep you involved on whatever it is they're showing you. So Facebook has built programs to kind of watch what it is that you click on and to see what interests you and to keep you clicking 
on that kind of content. And here's the interesting thing. According to this ex-employee, the stuff that keeps people online and engaged the most is the stuff that makes us angry. So they just keep pushing more of that to us, more and more stuff. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a debate about this to what extent they do that. I'll let somebody else sort that out. But it is of interest to me to ask this question. What is it about anger? Why is anger the thing that keeps people involved, that keeps them coming back to whatever it is they're talking about? Well, anger, I'm going to suggest, is attractive to us because in some ways it's kind of easy. It's easier for us to be angry than to find solutions. Um, we like being angry, especially if it's the self-righteous kind of anger. But like a diet of fast food, if we consume enough of it and we eat it long enough, that anger will turn into a cancer that eats us from the inside until there's nothing but a hollow shell left. Scripture warns us about the dangers of anger. Proverbs tells us that a harsh word stirs up anger and that the fool gives full vent to his anger. And we are not to associate with someone who is easily angered. Here's an image for you. Proverbs also tells us that just as twisting the nose produces blood, so does stirring up anger produce strife. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians that in our anger we are not to sin, we are not to let the sun go down on our anger. James tells us that a man's anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. And Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So we need another path here besides that one. And I want to suggest to you that thanksgiving is that path. We've heard in many places and from many sources that we should be grateful and thankful for all that we have. In fact, that's kind of why we have a Thanksgiving holiday. There's also a growing body of research that has tied an attitude of gratitude with a number of positive emotional and physical health benefits. In a 2010 article in the Wall Street Journal, they summarized their research this way. Uh, Adults who frequently feel grateful have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, and more happiness than those who do not. They're also less likely to be depressed, envious, greedy, or alcoholics. They earn more money, sleep more soundly, exercise more regularly, and have greater resistance to viral infections. And you want to hear that one (laughs) these days. Researchers are also finding that gratitude brings similar benefits in children and adolescents. Studies show that kids who feel and act grateful tend to be less materialistic, get better grades, set higher goals, complain of fewer headaches and stomach aches, and feel more satisfied with their friends, their families, and schools than those who don't. Scripture, of course, also encourages thankfulness. The psalmist regularly tells us to give thanks. Paul tells the Thessalonians to give thanks in all circumstances, and so on and on it goes. We are supposed to be thankful. 
And I want to add one more reason to the list of why we should be thankful. The spirit of thankfulness, I think, is protection for our faith. It is the guardian, a guardian for our soul. Thankfulness is steel-plated, battle-tested spiritual armor that we need in the fight for our hearts and our lives. You want to be good at being thankful because it just might save your spiritual life. Now, to make that point, I want to take you to a biblical example of a man who I'm sure must have struggled with being thankful, and yet by the grace of God, he resolved to be thankful nonetheless. And I'm talking about the prophet Habakkuk. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn there to Habakkuk chapter 3, and we are right at the end of his writing today. We're going to read verses uh, 17 to 19 today. We'll begin with just the first couple of those to talk a little bit about thankfulness. So Habakkuk chapter 3. And Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 17 to 18 say this, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk. He's thought to be a contemporary of Jeremiah, so we're thinking he lived maybe around 600 B.C., somewhere in there. It's important to know, though, that at the time of Habakkuk, the people of God were deep in sin and rebellion. This might have been during the reign of Manasseh or Jehoiakim, and may even refer to that time when uh, King Josiah tried to bring in his spiritual reforms. But whatever the time frame was, the people are in sin. God is supremely displeased with his people. And as a result, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, they go by a couple of different names, were about to come against the people of God as part of a divine judgment against their sin. So disaster, as Habakkuk is writing here, is literally on the horizon. And in addition to this, Habakkuk is himself having a crisis of faith. He cries out to the Lord, wondering why there is wickedness in the land, and God has seemingly done nothing about it. He expresses this feeling in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, why do you make me see iniquity, as he's speaking to God? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. So Habakkuk has an issue with God because it seems like he's doing nothing. And then as he sees this foreign army coming across the hills toward the people of God, the prophet cannot understand how a holy and righteous God could use an evil pagan nation to accomplish his will. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says this, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous 
than he. The prophet knows that God can't preserve his people, but it seems as if he's choosing not to. And to make matters worse, he's using a pagan evil nation to do it. Now, God does have an answer for both of these complaints. Basically, he will call Habakkuk to trust in faith and that he will deal with the Babylonians in due time. And yet this problem remains. What are we going to do about this invading horde that's about to come and conquer God's people? Verses 17 and 18 describe what is about to happen. The enemy is about to come in. He will destroy the fig tree and the vines, the olive trees and the fields. The livestock will be carried off. In other words, anything and everything that sustains life is about to be wiped out and lost. I wonder if you can relate to the prophet here. We, we may not all have faced the threat of an invasion, but I'm pretty sure all of us know this feeling of having the very things that sustain life stripped away from us in one form or another. We have felt that desolation, that disappointment, maybe that failure in our struggles in life. We know what it is to survey the land around us, the landscape around us, and to see nothing there, no hope for the future, nothing to sustain us. But in the midst of this spiritual crisis and turmoil, the prophet chooses to rejoice in the Lord. He goes back to his faith and he takes joy in his relationship with God. And that joy contains, I'm sure, elements of comfort and thanksgiving. In short, he looks to God for his answer and he finds joy and strength because he knows that God is all he needs. God is all we need. Joy and thanksgiving come to us when we remember that. And joy is hard to come by unless we hang on to that conviction. I was fascinated when uh, I read the account of the joy of a leading college football team in the United States, the coach, Urban Meyer, who uh, coached the NCAA football champs, the Florida Gators, um, was reflecting on uh, leading his team to the championship back in 2008. And even as he thought about that, this, this team had reached the pinnacle. Of as far, they went as far as they could go as a college football team. And yet Meyer was depressed and anxious. According to an interview he gave with ESPN, he, uh, he was so depressed that he began self-medicating with pills and alcohol. He actually was hospitalized for unexplained chest pains. He thought he was dying. He lost 37 pounds. He suffered from depression. And he described himself as mentally broke. I think it's safe to say that there was little joy or thankfulness in Meyer's life, even in the wake of all of these victories. Meyer said that he just could not enjoy the win in 2008. 
literally minutes after his team won. Minutes. He was on the phone recruiting for the next season. He seemed fixated on the goals. All he could think of was, we've done it, but we've got to do it again. And so he was back at it. He fixated on his goals, his insecurities, on his challenges, and it almost destroyed him. In contrast, Habakkuk was a completely different situation. Habakkuk's life was completely the opposite. There was no victory where Habakkuk was. All he could see was desolation and destruction coming to him. He could only see challenges. He could only see the emptiness of life in his future. But he also saw a God that he could trust in for what was to come. He could take joy in his relationship with him and be thankful for that. And today, Jesus invites us to a similar path. Christ calls us to find our joy in him, to meet with him in our dark moments, and to be thankful in him for everything that we need. Well, let's keep reading. I think Habakkuk is moved to joy in many things, but there's one thing in particular that he mentions, and that is joy and thankfulness for his salvation. Let's read verse 18. He says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The concept of salvation in the Old Testament referred to a new relationship with God, but it also included material well-being. And I don't doubt that Habakkuk is contemplating this wasteland that is about to come to the people of God. But he's also thinking that God is going to somehow restore them. Somehow he's going to save them and rescue them from this fate. And Habakkuk is looking forward to that day. He's also anticipating God's judgment on the invading army. He knows that God will deal with the Babylonians in due time. And he's envisioning God taking care of that at some point. And his confidence, I would suggest, is based on what he has seen God do in the past. It's a little bit hard to pick this up, but in uh, verse 3 of chapter 3, Habakkuk mentions two places. He talks about Taman and Mount Paran. Both of these places are sites that the Israelites would have come to and passed through as they were being led out of captivity, out of Egypt, miraculously by God's saving work. And I think Habakkuk mentions these places because he is recalling the time in which God saved his people literally from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians and took them to a promised land. God is the savior of his people. And this is what fills him with thankfulness. Thankfulness is at the root and the heart of his joy here. And it comes in the recognition of the great work that God has accomplished and will do again. And I want to suggest to you today that the challenge for us as the people of God 
is that in the midst of our difficulty and our dark valleys, we can still see the God, we can still see our God, the hand of God at work amongst us. What often distinguishes people of great faith is their ability in God's saving work in the midst of pain and suffering. Those of little faith can't recognize God's gracious and sovereign hand. Uh, Back when the people of Israel are leaving Egypt in Numbers 11, we find Moses dealing with the complaints of the people as he's leading them out of Egypt. At that point in the story, they're complaining about the miraculous food that God is providing for them literally every day. And even though people see this miracle and they're provided for every day, still they, be, they become unsatisfied. They, become, they, they start to long for the meat that they used to have back in captivity. And they actually want to go back there so that they can enjoy that again. And the text describes all the people, they're weeping outside of Moses' tent. And Moses is so frustrated. He literally says to God, this burden is too heavy. If you love me, you will kill me. That's how bad the complaining was. The problem, as Moses makes clear in his account, is that the people are grumbling with God. There is no thankfulness amongst them for what God has done. And again, Habakkuk shows us a different attitude. He shows us that we are to be thankful even in the midst of our distress. In commenting on the Numbers passage, that great preacher of old, Charles Spurgeon, helps remind us that thankfulness allows us to recognize what God is accomplishing in the midst of our trial. Trials show us the genuineness of our faith and shows us what we need to work on to mature in Christ. Our knowledge of God deepens through trial. As Spurgeon says, we would never know the music if the harp strings were not disturbed. We would never enjoy the juice of the grape if they were not crushed in the press. We would never know the sweet smell of cinnamon if it was not pressed and beaten. We would never know the warmth of the fire if the coals were not burnt and consumed. Our salvation comes to us by God and we find joy in his work and his hand being active in our lives. And our salvation is at hand now and will be there for us after this life as well. God's hand of blessing is in it as we journey toward our eternal rest. And thankfulness is what we need to have in order to recognize that and to be filled with joy even in the midst of our challenges. Well, finally, Habakkuk's spirit of thankfulness not only brings him joy and not only helps him see what God is doing, but I think it also equips him to live with strength and power for the day. Let's look at the last verse in this passage, verse 19. Habakkuk says this, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. I like what John Calvin does with this verse. Calvin sees the prophet not simply listing God as a source of power. He means to say 
that God is his only strength. There's an implied contrast here between the things which men usually depend upon and the strength that comes in knowing and relying upon God. And the meaning is clear. When all manner of threat comes to us, we can look to God for our strength. God is our hope. He is our all-sufficient power. And thankfulness helps us to see that and to move forward in the strength that God supplies. Habakkuk is recalling that. He uses a phrase from David and the psalm, Psalm 18, verses 33 and 34, where the psalmist says, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Some military hints here. Probably, I think, Habakkuk thinks of this because, again, he's seeing the Babylonians are coming. But he is, he's recalling here that God's people can look to him in thankfulness and faith. And in return, God's give them, God gives them a boldness and a confidence to meet the challenges of the day. And you get this similar feeling when you look at the last phrase. Habakkuk is talking about treading on the heights. I think, I imagine him looking on the landscape and maybe seeing the Judean hills and imagining himself scaling the highest mountain there in the strength that God can give him. Thankfulness is a weapon in our spiritual armor. John Piper in his sermon highlights some of these examples of how thankfulness helps us. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, we read, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Thankfulness helps us from becoming blinded by Satan's strategies and his lies. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And I take from this attitude of thanksgiving that it puts us in touch with our, blessing, with our blessings and so we can be watchful about the threats that come against us. And then again, as we heard, as Steve read earlier from Philippians, thankfulness can help us to find peace and strength. Philippians chapter 4 tells us to bring everything to God in prayer with thanksgiving so that we might know his peace. And that peace can give us a confidence to move forward, trusting in the providential care of God. And so in this sense, thankfulness, I think, makes us strong for the walk of faith. It empowers us against despair and defeat and against all those things that would steal away our joy, crush our spirit, and render us ineffective for God. I was reading an interview that Cindy Perlman did in the Chicago Sun-Times with actor Bill Murray. She was interviewing, interviewing him, and he was talking about a time early in his career when he had auditioned for a part uh, as an actor and he said this, he said, my performance was so bad that I walked out afterwards and onto the street. I kept walking for a couple of hours, and then I realized that I walked in the wrong direction 
and not in just the wrong direction from where I lived, but in the desire to stay alive. He was literally contemplating taking his life. But then he says this, he headed for Lake Michigan, and he thought, you know, if I'm going to die, I might as well go over to the lake and float a bit. That's classic Bill Murray. So I walked toward the lake, and I reached Michigan Avenue and started walking north. And somehow I ended up in front of the Art Institute, and I walked inside. And there was a painting of a simple peasant woman looking in a field with a sunrise behind her. And I always loved that painting. I saw it that night, and I said, look, there's a girl without a whole lot of prospects, but the sun's coming up, and she's got another chance at it. And I said, I'm a person too, and will get another chance every single day. And after gazing at that painting, Murray decided to live. Thankfulness, even in the small blessings of life, can give us the strength to persevere, to carry on, to tackle a new challenge, to move forward in hope when others descend into angry bitterness and defeat. Well, there's a lot more examples I could cite, but I think you get the idea. Thankfulness is an essential component to a strong, vibrant walk of faith in Christ. So let me leave you with this challenge today. Weave into your speech and your devotions and your thought life and your walk a thought of thankfulness, an attitude of gratitude towards God. Make it a mark of your faith. Work at finding things that can help you to be thankful. Let it touch everything that you do. Uh, Steve Jones, in an email some time ago, was telling us that in Africa, there is a little berry called the taste berry. And the taste berry is interesting because it changes your taste perception. There's a molecule in the berry, apparently, that attaches itself to the taste buds of your tongue. So, and when it does that, it shuts off all the other taste receptors that you have, except for the one that tastes sweetness. So you can literally taste something that is completely sour, and it will taste sweet if you've eaten that berry. I want to suggest to you that a spirit of thankfulness does the same thing for our soul. In a very real way, Jones says, gratitude is the Christian's taste berry. It turns even the difficult, sour things of life into sweetness and joy. So this Thanksgiving, let's try to be more thankful. Thankfulness is the sweetener of life. It's good for the soul. It's protection against evil. It's strength for the fight. So let thankfulness bind itself to your soul so that you might see the sweetness of God and give him glory as a result. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us a thankful people. Forgive us when the cares of this world or our short-sightedness, or our lack of faith make us bitter and despairing. 
Lift our eyes to look upon you and your mighty works. Remind us of your goodness and your power. And then may we in thankfulness model for the world a better path. One that is marked by strength and joy flowing from a thankful heart. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.